Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, episode number 78, for November 17th, 2009. The Tiny Man and Caroline, by Sarah L. Edwards. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky. As I've mentioned in previous introductions, for the month of November, Podcastle has asked the editors of several Poe-paying online magazines that offer free content to choose their favorite stories from their publications so we can bring them to you in Podcastle. Today's story is brought to you by Scott H. Andrews, editor-in-chief and publisher of Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Beneath Ceaseless Skies is a pro-rate online magazine of literary adventure fantasy, stories featuring classic fantasy elements like awe-inspiring fantastical worlds, but written with the elegance and subtlety of modern literary fantasy. They publish two stories and one audio fiction podcast every fortnight. Past authors include Holly Phillips, Aliette de Baudard, Yoon Ha Lee, and Richard Parks. To read their fiction online or in free ebook file formats, visit their website at beneath-ceaseless-skies.com. To download their podcast episodes or subscribe to the podcast, visit their website or look for the Beneath Ceaseless Skies page on iTunes. Tonight's story is The Tiny Man and Caroline by Sarah L. Edwards. Edwards has been writing FNSF for five years, during which time she's made three sales to Beneath Ceaseless Skies, won the Writers of the Future contest, and sold to Interzone, Bain's Universe, and other markets. Presently, Edwards is in Honduras for a year, teaching sixth grade at a bilingual school. You can read about her time in Honduras, as well as her writing, at her blog, snickelish.livejournal.com. Sarah Edwards would also like to mention that today's story is one of the series she's written in her steampunkish Dark Quarter universe. The characters and plot in today's story are unrelated to the others in the series, but if you're intrigued by the world, check out more of Edwards' work, starting with the Writers of the Future volume from 2008. This story is read for us by Bob Eccles. Bob Eccles is a radio news reporter who also enjoys writing short horror and science fiction stories. His stories have appeared in several publications, including Necrotic Tissue Magazine. He's also a submissions editor for the Flash horror website Flashes in the Dark. This is the last week of stories selected by other magazine editors, although there is one more Flash piece coming up later this week. I'd like to shout out some other pro-rate magazines that put up their fiction for free online. Clark's World Magazine, which you can find at clarksworldmagazine.com, Subterranean Magazine at subterraneanpress.com, and tour.com at... well, you can probably guess that one. They all put out excellent fiction. And now, enjoy the story. The Tiny Man and Caroline by Sarah L. Edwards None but the tiny men and the rats ran these dark streets beneath the streets where the river was piss and planks served for bridges. There was a time when J.B. would have traded a hand for a candle, but he'd been a new runner then, and young. Since then, long, terrified scrambles in this darkness had taught his feet as no map could do. Now he scurried along the ledges built of dredged sewer rubbish. At a side tunnel he turned and paused, blinking against stabs of light, a drain. He clambered up through its broken bars. The sun had set while he'd been below. 
The stabbing light was the glow of a street lamp. Pressing himself into the shadows of a carriage house, J.B. peered upstreet and down at the dark, massive forms of the Istocrats' castles. The West Hill, right. He'd never been this close before. From where he stood, it was castles all the way up, or so the chatter said, castles built of diamond windows and brownstone flecked with gold, and live dolls hung from the doors instead of knockers. Just one pretty was all he needed, one sparkling trinket to buy himself into the clubber chief's service and to buy his protection. Something rustled behind him, and he spun, certain he'd see Yol Stuhlbren's mutt closing in to tear him into a clutter of tiny man bones. But no, it was only a breeze scuffing newsprint across the cobblestones. J.B. shuddered against the chill and the trembling deep in his belly, and slipped along the shadows to the nearest dark-windowed house. The stones jutted out slightly between their mortar, forming ledges just deep enough for the toe of a determined, barefooted tiny man. He'd meant to find an opening from the roof, but at the second story a muffled snort drew him to a window. At his touch it swung silently open. On a bed lay a man stiff on his back, eyes closed, the whiskers of his mustache draping his face like rat's tails. J.B. edged past into the hall and drew the door shut behind him. A pretty, the hard-eyed kid had said, sneering down at him. Sewer running and pocket-picking wasn't enough. Never mind that J.B. made no claims to be a sneak thief. It was a fine pretty he needed to buy into Sloan's service. And don't think there ain't others trying for the place, runt. J.B. didn't let himself think about where that place was. Not yet. What about jewels? In the safe, likely. Yol's buddies had long complained of those. Silver? Yol boasted of stealing some rich's silver teapot years ago. The kitchen, J.B. guessed. Where'd riches keep their kitchens? He wanted to smack himself for this plan, this lack of a plan, except it was all he had between him and the sting whip, which Yold lay on heavy enough if he got hold of J.B. again, if he didn't set Kingfisher on him instead. He swallowed the doubts and kept going, glancing in the open doorways as he passed. The rooms were filled with furniture and tapestries likely worth his life and more, but he could hardly have budged them much less taken them below. He had to crawl down the stairs, pausing once when he thought he'd heard something creak. It didn't come again. He kept going, through rooms and doorways and more rooms, all full of istocrat trappings, and finally into the kitchen. He climbed up a cabinet and wandered the countertops, opening cupboard doors and peering over into drawers. The plates were china and the tools all iron, he found a big pot he could have slept in comfortably, and behind another door, a pantry stacked with jars and slouching burlap sacks, but nothing he'd guess for silver. Not that he'd know it if he saw it, eh? Brilliance splashed the room, bouncing from hanging knives in their rack, casting J.B.'s shadow a full three feet high against the window shutters. He whirled, hands high against the light. A girl stood in the doorway with a single wavering candle. Above a high-collared nighty, Wide blue eyes peered at him. Her mouth opened, closed. "'Are you an elf?' she said finally. "'You look older than me.' Another glance up and down him, over his stubby arms, his shirt, and trousers smeared with sewer grime. "'But you're not taller.' "'Not taller,' he agreed, but not much shorter, which made her three, four, 
He couldn't remember the year he'd stopped growing. "'I must introduce myself,' she said. "'I'm Caroline Elizabeth Morrowbridge.' She set the candle stand on the floor and curtsied. "'Jaby,' he said. "'Would she call the coppers, throw them out herself?' "'I beg your pardon. "'Name's Jaby.' "'Are you an elf, Mr. Jaby?' "'I don't think so.' She was hardly big enough to hurt him, but he'd enough on his head. He didn't need to rough some rich's little girl. "'Do you mean you don't know? "'You must come with me and I'll show you.' "'I can't be staying. "'Then I should have to call Mr. Gaither to come and show you out,' Caroline crossed her arms. "'And he doesn't like being waked.' J.B. gave a last regretful glance around the kitchen, so empty of pretties, and slid off the countertop. He followed her to the staircase, where she blew out the candle and crept slowly up, quite as softly as she had earlier. He remembered the creaking he'd heard. She led him into a bedroom, shut the door behind him, and relit the candle. "'We must be very quiet,' she whispered. "'I shall be scolded if anyone hears.' She reached beneath the bed and pulled out a book so broad and thick her arms trembled. Sitting on the flowery rug, she opened it to a page and pointed to a red-cheeked man clutching a nut as big as his head. "'That's an elf.' She looked up at J.B. and twisted her mouth. "'I believe you're too tall for an elf.' J.B. snorted. "'Never been too tall for anything.' She nodded seriously. "'I know what you mean. I'm terribly small for my age. I'll be nine in October.' Perhaps you're a sprite instead. No, that's silly. You haven't any wings, have you? You aren't hiding them beneath your shirt. Ain't hiding nothing, said J.B., freshly conscious of the slave collar scars on his neck, conscious, too, of the rips in his trousers and the sewer filth crusted on his feet. He wondered if there were any folk like that in her book, folk with scars and bruises and mud under their toenails. She frowned and turned more pages, muttering to herself. J.B. eyed the window. Could he get it open? That latch didn't look shut. Caroline looked up, pouting, and said, This book isn't very useful. You don't match the descriptions of any of the fairy folk. What, no tiny men in your book? he muttered. None of them that run your messages and keep your sewers running nice? Wouldn't figure a rich's book would talk about us. She leaned closer, eyes glowing with reflected candlelight. I've never heard of a tiny man. Her fingers stretched toward his face. Now you can't be telling people about me, he said, edging away toward the window. Of course not, she said, dropping her hand. Father would be fearfully angry. He hates elves and brownies and sprites and all those things. He says they aren't natural, that they're frauds and foul things a lady shouldn't think about. But you're not a fraud. Any ninny can see it. I don't understand why Father should object so. Franny Grace, that's my nurse, only I'm too old for a nurse now, she had a hat once with a sweet little bird on it. Every time she passed someone on the street or said hello, the bird would cheep, and Father made her give it to the rubbish man. Probably was a live doll, J.B. said. A what? From the dark quarter, you know, from the animatists. I don't know what you mean. Don't you know the dark quarter? He flicked his hand to the south, where the alleys are all closed in and there's canvas stretched over the streets, where the clubbers are, you know? Where poisons bubbled and vapored like the whiskey in Yole's corn still, where bastard babies were abandoned, never to grow to adulthood, though they might live that long, if you called it living, where he hoped to find a place before night's end, stupid runt that he was. 
She was leaning forward, eyes wide. Is that where you come from? I guess so, yeah. Every tiny man began in the dark quarter, however quickly he escaped thereafter. I should so like to see it. Why? he asked, appalled. I've never been to Fairy, she said. I've read about it, the strange creatures and people there. Quite dangerous, marvelous things they have in Fairy. Dangerous, right, said J.B. Folks like to knock you in chains as to talk to you, or use you up for their gimmickry if you're too old to work. It's all right, she said. I know to be very polite to everyone I meet, even the ugly people. I know to follow directions, and to not go where I'm not invited, and never eat anything offered me. I'll be quite safe. You're crazy. Her lips drew thin. You've come to rob father, haven't you? Hey, now. J.B. stumbled backward and fell against a chair only five feet from the window clasp. Just because I'm a child doesn't mean I'm stupid. You fairy folk are just like magpies, always after pretty baubles, the book said. Well, I'll get one for you if you'll take me to your country. Wait, what? A trade. I give you something nice, and you take me to fairy. I don't know the way to fairy, he muttered. To your country, I mean, or else I'll tie you up in my bedclothes and wake the whole house, and they'll put you in jail. I can't take you off with me. There'd be riches sending after me like wasps that got their nest smashed in, and coppers, too. I got enough folk after me now. Please, Mr. J.B., take me to see your country. You could return me before tomorrow, couldn't you, so no one would notice? Um, here, I'll find you something. I know. She stood up so fast the candle flickered out, and a moment later she'd crept out the door. He backed the last few steps to the window, reached for the clasp, and hesitated. He'd better get out now, except night was wearing on, and he couldn't flub this chance with Sloane. Couldn't. Every time he popped up from below, there'd be roughs looking for him. More than one had liked to lay his hand on a tiny man's bounty. And then Caroline was back, pressing into his hands something heavy wrapped in cloth. "'My opera glasses,' she whispered. "'They're very fine. Father had them custom-made. Now let us go before someone wakes.' Clutching the bundle, J.B. followed her down hallway and stairs, where he waited while Caroline draped a dark cloak over her nightie. Then she led him past the kitchen and through a side door that she closed behind her. "'How do we get there?' she said. For a moment he only stared at her, this rich girl just asking to be nabbed and ransomed. And then he shrugged and took out the paper he'd pulled from the ganger kid's unwilling fingers. On it were the quick-drawn figures, a gemstone inked in crimson, and three bronze lamps. "'What curious pictures,' Caroline said. "'What are they?' "'That's the street,' J.B. said, pointing to the gem. "'I don't know what the other's for.' He didn't want to go. Now, with the bundle heavy in his hand and the figures on the paper to direct him, he wanted to drop it all and run, below, maybe, to make his home with the rats. But you'll find him, even if another runner didn't turn him in. He had to come up sometime. J.B. fingered his neck the scars there reminding him of matters more pressing than old memories or tag-along istocrat girls. "'Let's go,' he muttered. At the drain, Caroline balked, peering down between the bars. "'Is it safe?' He lowered himself to the ground and shimmied through the gap. "'Safe is in your rich house. Go back if you want.' A pause, and then she was scrabbling down beside him. Once he had to pull her aside into a crumbling outlet— when he heard the tell-tale of a runner scrambling past, ferrying message or cargo. Another time he took her hand, and they ran by a sideway, and the squeaking rats nested there. 
Caroline didn't let go of them after they were passed. Eventually, she said, I don't understand why you like it here. Like? I got no say in it. Go up above, the real men'll catch me, right enough. Are they... are they worse than the things down here? Only the ones that like to beat me, or shoot me, or lock me up for being a runt. A runt? A tiny man. She shivered next to him, from his words or from the chill. It sounds like father, she said. I'm sorry we're like that. Sorry? He choked back a laugh. You're a rich muck's little girl. What do you care? I care. It's not good manners or good sense, either, to provoke fairy folk. Besides, I'm rather more like them than most, don't you think? I'm so small. I asked father once if my mother was a fairy. I thought that might account for it. And, J.B. said after a pause, and she wasn't, I suppose. Anyway, father was terribly angry. I think he was afraid. That's why I want to go with you. Father's afraid of something to do with fairy, and I want to know what it is. Better you be afraid, too, then. Perhaps, but I'm not. Not even now? A couple of deep breaths beside him, and then, No, not even now. And then they were crossing a plank into a sewer line he'd never run before. At the next storm drain, he had to sniff at the sluggish air and listen to faraway drips before he could decide the turn to take. The air was stranger here. Through the familiar sewage stench floated other odors, bitter, sick-sweet, acrid. The drain holes were few, and their bars sturdy, though every so often they passed port doors in the tunnel sides, all clamped shut. At a drain hole with two broken bars, J.B. climbed up loose bricks and gingerly pushed his way out. "'Is it fairy?' asked Caroline. "'Shh!' he hissed, as he stared at the street beyond. Belying its name, the dark quarter was radiant with the colored glow of dozens of windows. Draped in costumes sublime and hideous, men and women lurched past the windows and burst from wide-swinging doors.' Above painted faces, there sprouted plumage half again as high as their bodies, and tails of lizards and tigers and peacocks swept behind them. Caroline pushed up beside J.B. It is fairy, she breathed, staring at the spectacle. Guess you're seeing things after all, J.B. said, still looking. Something in the crowd's loose swagger was familiar. They're soaked. Come on, they got no eyes for us. Bright-hued lanterns lined the streets on both sides, leaving no shadows in which to hide. Instead, J.B. and Caroline wound their way amongst the revelers, who were too busy singing, shouting, and spilling pungent brew on one another to pay them any attention. The street ended in a wall disguised by some means of gauze and foam. J.B. boosted Caroline to the top and climbed over himself, and on the other side all was stillness and darkness again save only for plain yellow street lamps and the occasional candle in an upstairs window. At the first cross street, dim lamps shone green and gold, emerald and perhaps topaz, Caroline said. They followed emerald until they came to lamps of deep crimson that Caroline opined were garnet. They settled the question of which direction the third lamp should be counted from by starting off in one direction until we reach the end, then we can count coming back. But they didn't need to. A few blocks before the street lost itself in labyrinthine alleyways, they came to a shop front with bright windows and three lamps glowing over the door. J.B. looked at Caroline, shook his head. I know this kind of place. It's a gang lair, or a club, I guess. They got plenty of uses for a little rich's daughter. 
and you wouldn't like any of them. But this is fairy, she said. I can't stop just because I'm afraid. Besides, you said you have business? Then surely you have safe passage, and I shall too in your company. Not this time, he said. Here, get out of the light. He pointed behind a rubbish barrel. Scowling, Caroline huddled in its shadow. Now don't move. You're staying out here and hiding until I get back. Or don't you want to go home sometime? As she began to reply, he turned and stalked up to the door. No one stopped him. Few even turned to look as he came in. He was put in mind of Rathold, but it was not the same. Where Rathold's walls displayed skin-clad women in garish colors, these walls were paneled in wood. Rathold's tables were sopping with cheap beer by this hour, but here were only single glasses of a reddish drink, some still half full, with no evidence anywhere of bottles or kegs. And in Rathold at this moment there were surely the personal posses of two or three or even more of the thug chiefs, each jovial or surly as the booze took him. Here the faces were all somber. He stared for so long that someone glanced at him and said, "'You brought a message?' "'Sloan,' he mumbled. "'I'm looking for Sloan.' Soon the sneering, half-grown kid from the square was chivying him along through the tables, through the thick, sweeping curtains, and into an alcove behind another curtain, even thicker, so that when it was drawn to behind him, the outside murmur was hushed. Another moment, and the curtain swept open and closed again, around a thin, pale-faced man in a suit and a string tie. He eyed J.B. from beneath stark black eyebrows, and motioned him to a circle of chairs around a low table. "'You realize you are in a peculiar position,' the man said. "'The number of individuals beginning their employment in this district after the age of five or six years is remarkably small.' One eyebrow arched, much like the number of tiny men at liberty to seek employment. "'At liberty is a manner of speaking, mister,' J.B. said, lifting his chin. "'I thought it might be,' said Sloane. "'If I may.' J.B. shivered as Sloane's cool fingers brushed against his neck, pausing at the scars. I was lackey boy to a ganger named Yol for a long while. Until quite recently, I would guess. J.B. met his eyes. Yeah. Sloane dropped his hand and nodded as if this were expected. If you would show me the item you brought, the token, as it were, of your eagerness to join my enterprise. It came to J.B. that he'd never looked at the glasses in proper light. What if they were just a cheap shiny? But the sudden sharp panic receded as he pulled them from his pocket and unwrapped the linen. They were indeed a tiny pair of opera glasses, with a simplicity and a heft about them that suggested expense. "'How very interesting,' said Sloane, taking them from him. "'You understand that I do not personally secure raw material,' he said. "'And, of course, if the child is dead or grown, they are only a token. But even so—' Caroline, they were Caroline's glasses.' J.B.'s nails dug into his palms. A token, right. And he was a tiny man. He knew what good tokens were to the dark quarter's shaper's flesh, what manner of gimmickry they could do without even touching a person, so long as they had a handkerchief or a snip of hair. Stupid muck, what had he been thinking? Not thinking, that was it. Sloane was patting his pockets, finally bringing out an instrument with a gauge at its end, scented faintly of oil. He held the instrument to the glasses. The child is indeed alive. Yet the reading is irregular. He frowned and pulled a different gauge from his pocket, this one with tines jutting from its end, and held the glasses beneath the tines. 
You are either a fool or far more subtle than I guessed. Had it been any old gang chief, maybe J.B.'s bravado could have held, but it melted under Sloane's glare. Mister, I guess I'm a fool because I got no idea what you're saying. Haven't you? But it didn't sound like an accusation. And then the curtain opened, and a man huge but blank-eyed stood there, his massive hand engulfing Caroline's. A bogey. He intoned, Delamander says, this girl says she's with your visitor. Increasingly curious, said Sloane. Leave her here. Tell Delamander, Sloane says, post an alert, and keep an eye on the borders. Security is over loose. The man walked out. Young lady, if you will kindly sit beside your associate here, may I ask how you came to be here, and with what purpose? Caroline curtsied and sat. Mr. J.B. brought me, sir. We made a bargain. I gave him my opera glasses, she pointed, and he brought me to his country. His country? She thinks I'm an elf or such like, said J.B. miserably. And I always wanted so much to visit Fairy. Fairy, indeed, said Sloane. May I ask your name? Caroline Elizabeth Morrowbridge, sir. Morrowbridge, Morrowbridge. I could vow I was familiar with the name. Your parents? My father's Jonathan Standish Morrowbridge. My mother was Ellen Gainsworth before she married father, but she's dead now. Morrowbridge, of course, and it explains the peculiar reading. Sloane glanced at his instrument. Not peculiar at all, actually. What a marvelous coincidence it all is. Don't you agree? Caroline sat at the edge of her chair, silent, eyes bright. J.B. shook his head. Look here, Mr. Sloan. I'm looking for a place to curry, as you like, and any other odd bits a tiny man might do. I didn't mean nothing by bringing you these bungee glasses, nor by bringing this girl here, either, which I sure didn't mean to do. If you've no mind to tell, that's fine by me, sir. But just you know, I don't know nothing you don't tell me. Sloan raised an eyebrow. A wise attitude. A pity more don't take it. He turned to Caroline. Perhaps you would enjoy a tour of ferry. What about the job? J.B. wanted to ask. Was he in? Did he even want to be in? Gangers were no cheerful companions, but they were as good as kin next to clubbers, who were known for being sheer uncanny, which seemed a fair enough estimate of Sloane. Not that he'd a choice between Sloane and any old ganger. It was Sloane or Yol. He followed them out reluctantly, twitching at every sound behind him. Sloane led them through warehouse rooms full of rabbits, rooms where goats bawled and lank-tailed monkeys screeched. He gave Caroline an apple to feed a pair of sheep, bleating and milling in their pen. He led them strolling through laboratories, thick with the same sharp odors that filled the sewers below. J.B. scanned each new room for familiar benches or shelves, for the particular water-stained ceiling that he remembered clearest of anything in this place, because he'd spent so much time staring up at it, months and months, as they drained the growth out of him. Finally, they came to the room he knew, the high-beamed laboratory crowded with benches, instruments, and rows of vats. Sloane swept with his hand towards one and said, And here, as you can see, is how we begin the process of making tiny men. Caroline turned to Sloane, eyes huge. You make them? Certainly. Your associate, Mr. J.B., was destined to be a full-sized man once— J.B. jammed his fists deeper in his pockets. He dared not look in the vat where the baby slept. This part of the dark quarter he knew quite well, could never unknow, however he'd like to. The bogies standing over the vats were the same that attended him, 
the huge, mindless man who spoke only others' words. They'd never spoken any to him. Then how did you make him small? Caroline was saying. We've certain methods that we find quite satisfactory. Trade secrets, J.B. said, amazed at the mildness in his voice. They don't tell outside folk. The techniques would bore you, said Sloane. However, the principle is simple enough. You, as a living entity, enjoy certain quantities of which you are almost surely unaware, quantities such as the general health of your body, the amount of growth you will experience over your lifetime, the vast complicated sum of your intelligence. Imagine yourself a beaker. He dipped a nearby glass in the vat's blue fluid. Here you are, and here is something else, something entirely lifeless, completely inanimate. He held up another glass, empty. What a simple matter it is to pour some of you into some of it. Fluid sloshed into the empty glass. A tiny man was a full glass once, but we poured most of his growth into something else. Useful. What sort of useful? What was it they'd cheated him to make? And what was this ache in his hands, as though they would snap out and strangle Sloane of their own accord? You mean Mr. J.B. is an ordinary man? He's only... Caroline paused, searching for the word... He's only made? She peered around at J.B., eyes glimmering with tears. He isn't of the fairy folk? Sloane didn't seem to hear. There is one more thing I should particularly like to show you, Miss Morrowbridge, he said. This way, please. Caroline gave J.B. a last forsaken look and followed, turning her head away when he caught up to her. He buried his hands in his pockets and stomped ahead. Dumb riches, girl. He should not expect anything else from her. Beyond was another hallway lined with doors, in each a window crisscrossed with bars. At one of these Sloane set a wide, shallow-stepped ladder and held Caroline's hand as she climbed it. J.B. pushed up beside her. Through the window was a child's nursery, very small, wallpapered and wood-floored, and carpeted with a colorful rug. In the bed slept a girl somewhat smaller than Caroline. "'Why is she here?' Caroline said. "'A man has requested a simulacrum of his late beloved,' said Sloane. "'We procured an unwanted girl-infant, "'and have since been molding her flesh in the desired pattern. "'But, of course, she would grow at the rate of any ordinary child "'if we did not supplement that growth with, shall we say, "'the contents of someone else's beaker.' "'So you shall have another tiny man?' "'Who can say? Human growth is costly.' This man offered us a source of his own, rather than pay the fee we asked, and we must extract the growth indirectly, via tokens and potions. An inefficient method. Perhaps he will decide sometime soon that the usual growth rate is sufficient. <laughs> a slight cough. I'm not sure he will even see the project through. He is a rather nervous man. J.B. looked at the sleeping girl, doubtless accustomed to her tiny world, and the people staring at its window. He had been her once, only he had never grown. And she would, maybe. So someone else would be the tiny man. A suspicion struck, as sudden and brilliant as a flint spark. He crawled down the ladder, certain every thought was written in the tension of his shoulders, in his glare. If Sloane noticed a change, he ignored it as he ushered Caroline to the floor. Caroline, who was terribly small for her age... J.B. kept his eyes low as he followed them, composing his face. What did it matter if Caroline's rich papa was draining her growth away for that project back there, to gimmick up his dead wife? 
It didn't, that's all. Caroline was a riches girl. She'd be all right, no matter her size. It didn't mean anything to J.B. Sloane returned them at last to the club, pausing at the door to allow them ahead. To the same meeting room, he said. We've one last matter to discuss. It wasn't until J.B. had pushed aside the curtain under the blank eye of a sentry bogey that he realized Sloane was some distance behind them. Caroline slid into a chair and watched J.B. carefully as he stood by the next one. That's right, Rich's girl. Look at him. Nothing special. Just made. What is he going to do to us? she asked. Won't do nothing, J.B. growled. No way a gimmicker would risk gumming up a project. He won't turn us into anything, will he? Sloane pushed aside the curtain and smiled down to Caroline. "'Ms. Morrowbridge, Sloane said, "'it has been my unexpected pleasure to show you around my small realm.' Another smile, which Caroline didn't return. "'As a last treat before you make your way home, "'perhaps you'd care for a bit of brew we make here.' From a tray behind him, he brought a steaming mug and set it in front of her. She took a gulping breath. "'I mustn't drink things from Fairy. "'If I do, I'll have to stay here for always.' "'Ah, but in this corner of Fairy it's different. "'Here you must drink a bit of our brew, "'or else we cannot allow you to leave. "'And you have had enough adventure for now, have you not? "'You would prefer to return to your home and your bed?' "'Thank you ever so much,' Caroline said. "'But I mustn't drink it.' "'Her voice was firm, but her hands trembled in her lap. "'Just leave her be, why don't you?' J.B. said. "'Sloan hushed him with a wave of his hand "'and crouched to look Caroline in the eye.' "'Ms. Morrowbridge, I shall be frank. "'I cannot allow you to remember clearly the things you have seen here.' "'I won't tell,' she whispered, shrinking back. "'That is not enough, I'm afraid. "'This brew, which is, I assure you, a most pleasant and warming potion, "'will leave this night's happenings a dream, and no more. "'If things have frightened you here, then you will remember them only as a nightmare. "'If you have been disappointed,' he gave Chaby the barest glance, "'then this brew will dull the sorrow.' but I cannot allow you to leave until you drink it. She turned frightened eyes to J.B. She'd reason to be afraid. Little Rich's girl in this down-and-under city. Something would have scared her sometime if she hadn't come here. Still, he didn't like seeing it in her eyes. If forgetting was all Sloane's drink would do to her, maybe it was just as well. J.B. nodded to her. All right, she said. Her eyes still on J.B. She picked up the mug with both hands, lifted it to her mouth, and did not lower it until it was empty. "'Excellent,' Sloane said. "'Now perhaps you will find the getting out of our district a simpler matter than the getting in.' He led them down a long casement of steps to a room with all the damp, dark odor of a cellar. At the far end was a rounded bronze door with a mechanism on its face. "'We have our own uses for runners on occasion,' he said. "'J.B., when you return we can discuss the details of your employment.' I believe we can find a mutually satisfactory arrangement. J.B. nodded, mute. Sloane pressed at one knob and twisted at another, and the whole door swung in, bringing the sewer stinks with it. Right, come on, J.B. said, taking Caroline's arm and helping her climb over the door's edge. It clanked solidly behind them. The trek back to the West Hill was slower because of Caroline, but less tentative now that J.B. had begun to see the pattern of these new sewers. They'd just crossed a plank into familiar lines when Caroline sniffled. Another three steps, and she sniffled again. "'That wasn't fairy,' she said. "'Could have told you that,' 
J.B. said. I knew it wouldn't be. I know there's no such place as fairy, another sniffle. I'm not a baby, but when you talked about it, it sounded like fairy, all full of magic. And it was. Some of it was so very pretty, like the lamps that told the street names, and those creatures we saw dancing. I couldn't have imagined half the things I saw. It was just like I thought fairy would be. I always knew why people wanted to go to fairy. It was beautiful and strange and full of things that you couldn't explain with ordinary words. But now I think I understand why they should want to leave. A pause. That's why I drank what Mr. Sloan gave me. Was I foolish? Maybe you don't want to remember all that, said J.B. Caroline wrapped both her hands around one of J.B.'s. And I always knew you weren't an elf, she said softly. But you're still small, like me. I'm sorry Mr. Sloan and those people did those things to you. Nothing for you to do about it, he muttered. It was just aristocrat manners talking, he told himself. It didn't mean anything. Come on, we gotta get you up there before dawn and people start watching. She didn't say any more, and in another ten minutes he was half carrying her. It came to him, as they climbed the last few blocks uphill, that there'd be questions regardless. Her dress was streaked with slime and she smelled like a runner. They'd probably think she'd fallen in someone's privy. At least she wouldn't have to worry about explaining, if that muck Sloan knew his business. She wouldn't know any better than anyone else. Finally, the right storm drain. He left her leaning into the wall while he clambered above to look for passers-by. The faintest hint of dawn hung at the horizon. He boosted her up and got her the last few steps to the side door, where she fell into a heap, already dozing. Much longer and the whole world would be waking, not just the milkmen and the lampdowsers. Regular folk, and Yol, too, hunting his runaway runt. He knew a side drain down the hill where no one would bother him, where he could sleep a while before reporting to Sloane. He turned towards the drain, glancing back once to the girl huddled at the door. She was just a riches girl, and anyway she was safe now. She was no worry of Jabies anymore. He crawled below and headed towards that side drain terribly small for her age. It was somewhere beneath the dark quarter, not quite to Sloane Street, that J.B. realized what he was going to do. It didn't feel like a decision, like when he'd stood at the door of Yol's shop, thrown the severed slave collar behind him, and run. It was like the tide washing into Upper Inlet, each wave a little higher, until the grounded ship rocked on her hull. He was going to save Caroline. They'd gimmick no more growth from her. He'd see to it. And, like a ship knew which way the ocean was, J.B. knew how. Maybe. He didn't crawl up the same drain this time. He hadn't been watching the way they'd come to Sloane's laboratories, but his feet knew, even here below. When he was under the right street, he started sniffing for that peculiar bitterness of a tiny man's vat water, and followed it to an incoming pipe hardly wider than himself. He squeezed into the drain and edged upwards. Those drain holes in the corners of Sloane's laboratory, they were big enough for him. He'd be fine, as long as no early-rising gimmicker spilled something, and no one mopped the floor, and no one had bothered to secure those grills that covered the drains, he'd be fine. Finally, the pipe turned upwards, and dim light filtered down. J.B. wedged himself against one side and wriggled up, wedged himself against the other side and up again. He reached the top and pressed against the grill, nearly slipping as he did. It didn't move. He shoved his shoulder up, and it unstuck. 
Carefully, he slid it aside and heaved himself onto the laboratory floor, cringing as the grill scraped against cement. Across the room, something skittered away. J.B. dropped to the floor, lungs tight. There was a squeak, more scuffling, and then he just saw a rat's tail as it disappeared around the door. Just a stupid rat, and he was jumping like he'd never seen one before. Him, a sewer runt. He took another breath and started walking. It was a few moments' careful skirting of the benches, twisting of doorknobs almost above his reach, creeping down silent hallways, before he found the laboratory they'd first come to, where Sloane had laid Caroline's glasses. J.B. hoped, it was all he had, a hope, a suspicion, that Sloane would not leave a token there unless there were other tokens about. Caroline's glasses still lay on a bench. Whether that was good sign or bad, J.B. couldn't guess. He walked down the row of cabinets, opening them one by one, and searching for any collection of oddments that might be tokens. He found squat beakers and glass bulbs with long, slender necks, matches and vials of fluid. Tiny white crystals, like salt, maybe they were salt, sat beside stones the size of his fist. At the end of the row stood a block of steel, taller than J.B., with a wheel in its front and the slit outline of a door. If he were a clubber with gimmicked pretties to keep, he'd keep them here where would-be thieves like him couldn't snatch them. He ran a finger down the groove, felt the solid inflexibility of the thing. He rummaged a blunt knife from one of the cabinets and poked at the groove, wedging the blade until it began to bend. The wheel, now that was how it opened properly, wasn't it? He tried it, and it rotated smooth and silent under his hand, but the door did not suddenly swing open, nor a lock click free. He shoved at the immobile, immovable mass. No good. The thing was solid as a sewer wall under twenty feet of rock. Sloane. If he could get a jump on Sloane, make him open it. I meant that you should report to me personally. J.B. twisted, already backing against the safe. It was Sloane, of course, in the same cheap suit, though a rat was now draped over one shoulder. In the half-light, J.B. caught a glimpse of its eyes and shrunk from their glittering brightness. Perhaps you will explain why you're attempting to deface my safe. Sloane's voice was cool, mild. J.B. straightened as tall as his body allowed and kept his mouth closed. He wasn't going to snivel even if he was going to get gimmicked one last time. Sloane dropped to a crouch and looked J.B. in the eye, as did the rat. J.B. pressed just a little harder against the edge of the safe. Sloane noticed. Go, he said, and the rat hopped down and scurried into the shadows. Now, if you will kindly explain, the voice hardened. The words burst from him. You got no right. Undoubtedly, Sloane said. But to which wrong do you refer? That girl back there, said J.B., the one growing up for some crack-kettled rich. It's her father, isn't it? Caroline's. Ah, Sloane nodded, stood. As he lit a lamp on the workbench, he said, I may not violate the privacy of my clients, of course, but allow me to compliment you on your astuteness. Caroline ain't been left on your doorstep like some cellar queen's kid. What do you think? You can do your gimmickry on any muck you like? Like they're just air, free to take? Better that she be abandoned before we use her? Better that she slip into the sewers afterwards, like so many sources do, to become couriers and pickpockets for the city's underlife? Sloane smiled faintly. You, of all men, know our business here in the quarter. You sought employment nonetheless, did you not? 
J.B. stared for a moment. His teeth clamped so hard his jaw ached. And then, you go on talking like that, like maybe you're sorry about her and the others, when you made us this way. Look at me. I can't even reach to punch you in the apples. I can't go abroad for fear the right-living folk will catch me. And it's not just me, either, nor the other bastards folks leave in your alleyways. You do this rich mucks girls just for coin. I'm just some dumb runt, is what I'm thinking, because I'd take those kid glasses and lay your head with them. I know the place. You learn that kind of thing, running for gangers, which is all you left me to. All that and... But the words were getting caught, and his eyes burned with tears. He could only stare blurrily all the way up to that pale face, those eyebrows sardonically raised. All that, Sloane finished, and you still find whatever I might offer you preferable to running for Yol Stulbrand, avoiding that cur of his, and the stings from his slave collar. Sure don't, sure don't. Sloane turned away. Very well, then. Kindly step aside. J.B. shuffled away as Sloane walked to the safe. He spun the spokes once, twice, back again in some pattern J.B. couldn't see, and then pulled the door open. Inside were shelves of jars, each with some oddment or two, although not what J.B. had expected. Curls of hair, pilings of dull white clippings like maybe Istocrat's fingernails. Sloane plucked a jar from the array, swung the door shut, and twirled the wheel. He held the jar out for J.B. to see. This, I believe, is what you came for. A ringlet of brown hair curled at the bottom. It looked like Caroline's. Sloane set the jar on the bench and crouched again. J.B. did not shrink away this time. How badly do you want the contents of that jar? J.B. waited. Sloane sighed. I plan to offer you our usual compensation, food, clothing, security from all but accident, and your own stupidity, but I see by your face that this isn't enough. Suppose I offered you that jar and its contents as well. Don't make sense, J.B. said. I'm just another no-account runt. What do you want me for? You shall run my errands and my messages. You shall travel among your old circles of petty criminals and would-be gangster kings and report on all you hear. You shall be a spy, an envoy. In all these things I will require absolute obedience. That's dumb. You can have any muck you want for a coin or two. But I cannot hold their loyalty as I hold yours. It would be a simple matter to obtain a few more strands of hair from the girl, if I wished, if you acted against my interests. You give me that jar, and I gotta trust you won't gimmick Caroline any more? As I must trust that you will not betray me. Why won't I run out right now and shout to all the coppers and the gangs about you? First, because they won't listen. Second, because you don't yet have anything to tell them. But most importantly, because you would not be standing in my laboratory if you didn't care more for that young lady, whom you'd never met until last night, than for your own convenience. She's just some riches girl, J.B. muttered. Yes. Sloane folded his arms and looked down at J.B., his expression blank. She is but one of many projects. There is the wife Caroline's father requested, for example. I make you no promises about her fate, nor about that of any other creature in my laboratories. Think carefully, J.B. Tiny Man. Do you trade your liberty for one little girl's height? That was it. A job, and Caroline being all right. Everything he'd wanted, more than he'd wanted, when he'd crawled out of the West Hill sewer looking for a pretty. The glasses, too, J.B. said. Sloane raised an eyebrow, nodded in what maybe was approval. 
the glasses, too. J.B. pushed away the picture of the little gimmicked girl sleeping in her little room. He couldn't help her. He couldn't help all those others, either. People and beasts and some in between. This was all he could do. Yeah, okay, he said. You got me. Sloan left him to attendance with instructions to feed him and find him a place to sleep, and when he woke again, Sloan sent him with a message to a dive across town. You needn't hurry on the way back. Just see you don't get caught. You've no security yet from rabble like y'all. J.B. heard the hint, though he wondered why Sloan would give it, and after he'd delivered his message to the gape-mouthed serving girl, he ducked beneath the streets and walked the sewer line up, up, following his feet along the turns. A few candles still lit the windows of Caroline's house. He knew the window he wanted this time, and he climbed up and out to it, remembering how the catch hadn't been quite closed. It wasn't now. He jogged it until it scraped loose. Frozen, he waited, but there wasn't a sound. Silently, he swung the window open and crawled in. There was no sleek head on Caroline's pillow, just a lump of quilt. Caroline? Nothing for a moment. Then fingers slipped out of the quilt, and slowly it slid down from Caroline's eyes, just glints in the dark. Who, who are you? she whispered. The potion. He should have remembered. A tiny man, he said. Like an elf, kind of. The head disappeared. I don't want to see an elf. The quilt muffled the words. Go away. I'm J.B. Don't you remember me? But of course she didn't. She peeked out again. The cover still pulled up over her nose. I dreamed about you. Yeah? He took a step forward. Again the head ducked out of sight. It was a bad dream, she said, her voice wavering. Please go away. Stillness. No sound but quick, sniffling breaths beneath the quilt. Finally, J.B. said, I won't bother you again, but I'll be seeing no one else does, you hear? He whispered the last words. I'll see you're all right, Caroline. He unwrapped the cloth from the opera glasses and laid them on the table by her window, and then he slipped out again and down and into the seeping streets known only to the rats and the tiny men. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab On a Pale Horse, Incarnations of Immortality by Piers Anthony. I first read this book when I was a teenager. It's kind of like our first episode, Come Lady Death, but in novel form. It'd be a fun diversion for my next road trip. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com slash castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. Feedback for Podcastle episode number 70, Russell Asplund's The Dybbuk and the Bottle. Though pretty much everyone adored Wilson Foley's narration, there were some complaints about his Hebrew and Yiddish pronunciations. Javelin had some issues with them, but also said, Yay, Jewish folk tales. The author did a great job. I saw the ending coming before Rabbi Meltzer even showed up on the scene, but that's probably just comfortable familiarity with the genre. Unblinking said, This was a really cool story. It seemed like a genuine folktale, whether it was or not. It had the style of a fable, which I rather enjoyed, though 
I didn't expect to when the story started. Osiat said, I liked it. Classic contract story, and those are always enjoyable for me, but what really stood out this time was the protagonist and his desire to be a miracle worker. He studied rabbis who are, of course, men who study, but they study the world and the word of God, whereas he just studied them. He didn't have the first clue about the world or God or how to be a man who can outsmart a demon. Just because you study something doesn't mean you understand it. That's all the feedback we have for this week, but I'd leave you all with a wish. Come on over to our forums at forums.escapeartist.net, where you can discuss the stories and a lot of other stuff too, including t-shirts. Ah, that's right, you thought I'd forget to mention it this week, didn't you? But Podcastle finally has t-shirts, and I want you all to know about them. They're made of such fine fabric, and the design itself will make you feel like a miracle worker. They were forged in the very fires of Mordor by a band of orcs, and are available for your convenience at poddisc.com. Rachel, Anne, Anna, and I had to acquire probability swords, glaives, glamdring, or was it glamdrung, breach passwords, and the deplorable word itself to bring these back from hell to you. It was awesome. Luckily, Anna didn't have to utter the deplorable word because then three quarters of the editing staff would be dead and there'd be total anarchy at Podcastle. Anyway, if you put in a pre-order before November 28th of this year, they could be yours for a mere 16 bucks. Think of it as your way of sticking it to Saruman. There's also killer designs for Escape Pod and Pseudopod too, so pick up one or three over at poddisc.com. So remember, shop smart, shop as smart, and we'll see you all next week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Galadriel said, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. <laughs>